Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong. Chapter 1. United. My depression began with an imaginary tick. For an hour, I stared at the mirror, waiting for my eyelid to flutter over the corner of my mouth to tingle. Do you see my tick? I asked my husband. No. Do you see my tick now? I asked my husband. No. Do you see my tick now? I asked my husband. No. In my early 20s, I used to have an actual tick in my right eyelid that spread so that my right facial muscles contracted my eye into an occasional pop-eye squint. I found out I had a rare neuromuscular condition called hemifacial spasm, triggered by two cranial nerves behind my ear that became twisted. In 2004, I was 26 years old. A doctor in Pittsburgh corrected my spasms by inserting a tiny sponge to separate the two entwined nerves. Now, seven years later, I was convinced that my spasm had returned, that somehow the sponge had slipped and my nerves had knotted themselves up again. My face was no longer my face, but a mask of trampling nerves threatening to mutiny. There was a glitch in the machine. Any second, a nerve could misfire and spasm like a snake in house hissing water. I thought about my face so much I could feel my nerves and my nerves felt ticklish. The face is the most naked part of ourselves, but we don't realize it until the face is somehow injured and then all we think of it is its naked condition. My self-conscious habits returned. I found elaborate ruses to hide my face in the public cradling my cheek against my hand as if I were in a constant dismay or looking away to quietly ponder a question about the weather when all I could think of it was my ticklish nerve that could any second seize my face into a tick. There was no tick. It was my mind threatening mutiny. I was turning paranoid, obsessive. I wanted someone to unscrew my head and screw on a mass neurotic head. Stinking thinking. My husband called my thinking. To try to fall asleep, I ingested whiskey, then whiskey with Ambien, then whiskey with Ambien, Xanax, and weed. But nothing could make me sleep. When I could not sleep, I could not think. When I could not think, I could not write, nor could I socialize and carry on a conversation. I was a child again, the child who could not speak English. I lived in the beautiful rent-stabilized lot on the unremarkable corridor of Lower Broadway known for its retail jean stores that pumped out wallpaper of hot 97 hits. I was finally living the New York life I wanted. I was recently married and had just finished writing a book. There was no reason for me to be depressed. But any time I was happy, the fear of an awful catastrophe would follow. So I made myself feel awful to preempt the catastrophe hitting. Overtaxed by this anxiety, I sank to deep depression. A friend said that when she was depressed, she felt like a slug that fell from its, from its tree. An apt description. I was dull, depleted, until I had to go out and interface with the public. Then I felt flayed. I decided to see a therapist to treat my depression. I wanted a Korean-American therapist because I wouldn't have to explain myself as much. She didn't get me and know where I was coming from. Out of hundreds of New York therapists available on the Aetna database of mental health care providers, I found exactly one therapist with a Korean surname. I left a message for her and she called me back. We set up a consultation. Her small, dimly lit waiting room had a framed Diego Rivera poster of a kneeling woman holding a giant basket of calla lilies. The whole room was furnished in Rivera's tranquilizing palette. The brown base of cattails the caramel leather armchair, a rug the color of dying coral. The therapist opened her door. The first thing I noticed was the size of her face. The therapist had an enormous face. I wondered if this was a problem for her, since Korean women are so self-conscious about the size of their faces that they will go under a knife to shave their jaw lines down, a common Korean compliment, your face is so small it's the size of the fist. I went to her office and sat down on her couch. She told me she was going to begin with some standard consultation questions. The questions she asked were indeed standard. Was I hearing voices in my head? Having suicidal thoughts? I was suited by how standard these questions were, since it assured me that my depression was not in fact me, but a condition that was typical. 
I answered her consultation questions despondently. I might have been even handled my despondency to prove to her and myself that I needed to be there. But when she asked, was there ever a time in childhood where you felt comfort? I searched for memory. And when I couldn't recall a time, I collapsed into sobs. I told her the beginning of everything, my depression, my family history, and when our consultation was over, I felt remarkably cleansed. I told her I'd like to see her again. I'm not sure I'm taking any more patients with Edna. The therapist said neutrally, I'll contact you soon. The day after, I went ahead and called her office phone to set up another appointment. When I didn't hear from her for up to 24 hours, I left two more messages. The following day, she left a voicemail telling me she couldn't take me as a patient since she decided to stop taking Edna insurance. I immediately called back and left my own voicemail, explaining that Edna would reimburse me 80% for all our pocket costs. She didn't return my call. Throughout the week, I left four more voicemails, each one more desperate than the last, begging for her cell number so we could text about this. Then I began to randomly call her and hang up when I got her machine, hoping to catch her between appointments. I did this half a dozen times per day, until it dawned on me that she might very well have called her ID, which shamed me so badly I slunk into bed and didn't come out for the rest of the day. Finally, she left another terse message. It's a lot of paperwork for you to be reimbursed. I speed-dialed her number and shouted into her machine, I can handle the paperwork. While I was waiting for her to call back, I had to attend a reading at the University of Wyoming in Laramie. At this point, I was severely depressed. It was a miracle that I managed to board a plane when all I wanted to do was cut my face off. As suspected, the reading went badly. To recite my poem to audience is to be slapped awake by limitations. I confront the infinite chasm between the audience's conception of the poet and the underwhelming evidence of me as that poet. I just don't look the part. Asians lack presence. Asians take up apologetic space. We don't even have enough presence to be considered real minorities. We're not racial enough to be talking. We are so post-racial, we are silicon. I recited my poems in the kaju that is my voice. After my reading, everyone rushed for the exit. At a layover in the Denver airport on my way back to New York, I saw a therapist number on my phone. Eunice, I shouted into the phone. Eunice, was it rude to call her by her first name? Should I have called her Dr. Cho? I asked her when I could make my next appointment. Her voice was cold. Kathy, I appreciate your enthusiasm, she said, but it's best for you to find another therapist. I will handle the paperwork. I love paperwork. I can't be your therapist. Why not? We're not right for each other. I was shocked. Every pore in my skin sank with heart. I had no idea that therapists could reject patients like this. Can you tell me why? I asked feebly. I'm sorry, I cannot. I'm, are you not going to give me a reason? No. Why not? I'm not allowed to reveal that information. Are you serious? Yes. Is it because I left too many voicemails? No, she said. Are you seeing someone I know? Not to my knowledge. Then it's because I'm too fucked up for you, isn't it? Of course not, she said. Well, that's how I'm going to feel if you don't tell me why. You're making me feel like I should never open up and never share my feelings because I'm going to scare everyone away with my problems. Isn't it the opposite of what the therapist is supposed to do? I understand how you feel, she said blandly. If I do anything drastic after this phone call, it will be all of your fault. This is your depression talking. It's me talking, I said. I have another patient waiting, she said. Don't fuck her up too, I said. Goodbye. For as long as I can remember, I have struggled to prove myself into existence. I, the modern-day scrivener, working five times as hard as others, and I still saw my hand dissolve, then my arm. Often at night, I flinched awake and berated myself until dawn shift of light pierces my eyes. My confidence was impoverished from a lifelong diet of conditional love and a society who thinks I'm as interchangeable as lint. In the popular imagination, Asian Americans inhabit a vague proletarian status, not white enough nor black enough. Distrusted by African American, ignored by white, unless we are being used by white to keep the black men down, we are the carpenter ends of the service industry, the apparatchiks of the corporate world, we are mouth-crunching middle managers who keep the corporate world greased but who never get promoted since we don't have the right face for leadership. We have a content problem. 
They think we have no inner resources. But while I may look impassive, I am practically paddling my feet underwater, always overcompensating to hide my devouring feelings of inadequacy. There's a ton of literature on the self-hating Jew and the self-hating African-American, but not enough has been said about the self-hating Asian. Racial self-hatred is seeing yourself the way whites see you, which turns you into your own worst enemy. Your only defense is to be hard on yourself, which becomes compulsive and therefore comfort to pack yourself to death. You don't like how you look, how you sound. You think your Asian features are undefined, like God pinched out your features and then abandoned you. You hate there are so many Asians in the room who let in all the Asians you ran in your head. Instead of solidarity, you feel that you are less than around other Asians, the boundaries of yourself no longer distinct but congealed into a horde. I like to think that the self-hating Asian is on its way out with my generation, but this also depends on where I am. As Sarah Lawrence, writer, I had students who were fierce, empowered, and politically engaged and brilliant. And I thought, thank God, there is an Asian 2.0 we need. Asian woman ready to holler. And then I visited a classroom at some other university, and it was an Asian woman who didn't talk, who sat there meekly like a mice, with a nice hair, making me want to urge, you need to talk, or they'll walk all over you. In 2002, I was a graduate student in poetry at the University of Iowa's Writers Workshop. My friend and I were at the Coral Ridge Mall for a pedicure and a found family-owned place where the Vietnamese owner put on his immigrant petter by repeating everything twice. Pedicure, pedicure, sit, sit. I waited for a man's wife or daughter to serve me, but they had customers. The only pedicurist left was his son, who looks about 14 and wore an oversized black hoodie and cargo shorts. Behind the counter, he scowled, hands shoved into his pocket. He didn't look like a trained nail technician. He looks like he should be playing Halo on Xbox. When the boy didn't respond the first time, his father snapped at him to hurry up and fill the basin with the water. The boy walked over to where I was sitting. He squatted down until his scalped knees reaches his ears. I told him I wanted my toenails cut round, not square. He began filling the basin with water. It's too hot, I said, when I dipped my foot in. He slowly adjusted the temperature. I noticed that he cut my toenails square, not round. I noticed that he refused to look me in the eye. When he did, I detected a flicker of hostility. Did he feel aggrieved at spending all his afternoon school hours massaging the calves of Iowan soccer moms? Or did it just annoy him to serve someone who looks too much like him, someone who was young and Asian? Although I was 24, I could pass for 17, and I looked boyish with my short, choppy haircut. Still, I thought at the time, I am much older than you and you should respect me like you're forced to respect those I want blonde moms who come in here. Then he used the toenail nippers and pinched hard into the flesh of my big toe, hard enough to make me flinch. Can you please be softer? I asked tartly. He mumbled an apology but pinched his nipper even harder into my skin. Can you be softer? He tore our cuticle off. Hey, he dug his nipper in harder, I said. He tore our cuticle off. Softer. He dug his nipper in harder. That hurt. To be confident in at this line of service, you have to be so good you're invisible. And this boy was incapable of making himself invisible. Maybe I was hallucinating this pain to justify my own rising irritation that his physical boy presence was distracting me from relaxing. He was so ungainly in that supplicant crouch, making me feel ungainly in my vibrating massage chair. It wasn't fair. The boy dug his nipper into my toe so hard I yelped out again. His father shouted at him in Vietnamese and the boy's sharp ministrations finally softened by a smidge. I had had enough. I stood up, my two feet still in the basin soapy scum, and I refused to pay. My friend watched me, troubled by my behavior. I hoped the father would later punish him by withholding his paycheck, but the boy probably didn't even get a paycheck. We were like two negative irons repelling each other. He treated me badly because he hated himself. I treated him badly because I hated myself. But what evidence do I have that he hated himself? Why did I think his shame skunked the salon? I am an unreliable narrator, hypervigilant to the point of being paranoid, imposing all my own insecurities onto him. 
I can't even recall if I actually felt that pain or imagined it. Since I have rewritten this memory so many times, I have molded it down to nothing, erasing down to until he was a smudge of resentment while I was a smudge of entitlement until we both smudged into me. But he was nothing like me. I was so privileged that I was acquiring the most useless graduate degree imaginable. What did I know about being a Vietnamese teenage boy who spent all his free hours working at the nail salon? I knew nothing. When my father was growing up in the rural outskirts of Seoul, he was dirt poor. Everyone was poor after the war. My grandfather was bootlegger of the rice wine who couldn't afford to feed his ten children, so my father supplemented his meager diet with sparrows he caught himself and smoked in the sand pit. My father was smart and enterprising. He won a national-wide essay contest at the age of ten and started hard enough to be admitted into the second-best university in Korea. It took him nine years to graduate college because of mandatory military service and because he kept running out of money. When the 1965 immigration ban was lifted by the United States, my father saw one opportunity. Back then, only select professionals from Asia were granted visas to the United States, doctors, engineers, and mechanics. This screening process, by the way, is how the whole model minority quackery began. The United States government only allowed the most educated and highly trained Asians in and then took all the credit for their success. See, anyone can live the American dream, they say about a doctor who came into the country already a doctor. My father lied. He wrote that he had the training as a mechanic. He, along with my young mother, was sent to the hinterland of Erie, Pennsylvania, where he works as an assistant mechanic for rider trucks. Despite lack of training, he got by until a cracked stone in an air grinder came loose and shattered his leg so badly he was in cost for six months. Ryder fired him instead of giving him a workman comp because they knew he couldn't do anything about it. Then they moved to LA, where my father found a job selling life insurances in Koreatown. He worked more than 10 hours a day and was eventually promoted to a manager. But years of selling life insurance were taking their toll. No matter how much he worked, he could never save enough. He drank heavily during those years and fought with my mother, who being my sister and me with the fury intended for my father. Later with bank loans, my father bought a warehouse that distributed dry cleaning supplies in desolate industrial section of LA with his business. My father became successful enough to fund my private high school and college educations. On paper, my father is a so-called model immigrant. Upon meeting him, strangers have called my father a gentleman for his quiet charisma and kindness, a personality he cultivated from years of selling life insurance and dry cleaning supplies to Americans of all manner of race and class. But like main model immigrant, he can be angry. The question of racial identity can bedevil the children of Asian immigrants, but it's assumed that immigrant parents themselves aren't unfazed by the race question because they are either working too hard to care or they identify with the country they hail from and there's nothing more to say on the subject. But the experiences of my father acquired as a mechanic in blue-colored white Pennsylvania and as a life insurance salesman trolling through neighborhoods ranging from Brentwood to South Central had made him highly sensitive about his own racial identity to the point where everything came down to race. If we were waiting for a table and some of us seated before us, he pointed out that it was because we were Asian. If he was sitting way in the back of the plane, he said it was because he was Asian. When my parents moved me into my dorm room during the first week in Oberlin in Ohio, my father shook my roommate's father's hand, who then asked him where he was from. When my father said South Korea, my roommate's father eagerly replied that he fought in the Korean War. My father smiled tightly and said nothing. There are many Caucasians here, my father said quietly when he visited me in graduate school in Iowa. Where are all the black people, he asked, as we drove into Walmart parking lot and found a parking spot. Always smile and say hello, my father said. You have to be very polite here. My daughter, my father told the Walmart cashier, is a poet at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Really, the Walmart cashier said, don't ever make an illegal U-turn here, my father advised after I made an illegal U-turn because they will see that you are on Asian driving badly. By the time I was in Iowa, I had already decided that writing about my Asian identity was juvenile. As a good student of modernism, I was tirelessly committed to the new and was confident that despite my identity, I would be recognized for my formal innovations. 
I believe this even after I later discovered a blood post called peroethnic cleansing, it tells in mind. Written by a former classmate from Iowa who used a coward pseudonym Poetry Snark, he ripped on my first collection by describing it as a hack identity politics poems. Then he compared me to Li Young Li. Not only do we look alike, we write alike. Then declared that the poetry world would be better off if all the mediocre minority poets, like myself, were exterminated. I immediately scrolled down to the comments section. Out of the dozen, there was not one comment that came to my defense. Not even weak-willed, half-hearted, hey man, promoting genocide is not cool. Instead of being outraged, I was hurt and ashamed. A part of me even believed him. I tried so hard to prove that I was not just another identity politics poet. And he had exposed me for the unintellectual identitarian that I was. My shame was compounded by the fact that I didn't know who Poetry Snark was. It could be anyone. Then the post became so popular it was the second link that came up when you googled me. Who were all these people who clicked into the site and agreed with him? Did they all want me exterminated? Eventually, when someone ousted my classmate, I was actually relieved. That smarmy asshole? Of course it would be him. My classmate's repellent post was almost easier to handle than my graduate school experience because the slow trip of racism in Iowa was underhanded. I was always second-guessing myself, questioning why I was being paranoid. I remember the wall of condescension whenever I brought up racial politics in workshop. Eventually, I internalized that condescension mocked other ethnic poetry as too ethnic -y. It was made clear to me that the subject of Asian identity itself was insufficient and inadequate unless it was paired with a beautier subject like capitalism. I knew other writers of color and Iowa who scrubbed ethnic markers from their poetry and fiction because they didn't want to be branded as identitarians. Looking back, I realized all of them were, curiously, Asian American. Back when I was a graduate student, whether you were formalist or an avant-gardist, there was a parody about poetic form that was different. Any autobiographical reveal, especially if it was racial or sexual, was a sign of weakness. I remember going into the university's main library, one of my favorite refugees, and perusing the recent archive of graduate student theses. I saw few Asian names, not one of them, from what I could tell, had published after graduation. I was afraid I would disappear like them. It was an Iowa that I was diagnosed with hemifacial spasm disorder. My tick, which I attributed to caffeine, grew worse. Enough though that I believe the people noticed, though no one has said anything. I remember rising up early in the morning for my CAT scan appointment. I lay in the motorized gurney that slid into the machine. The interior was smooth, white, and cylindrical. I felt like I was inside a gigantic, hollowed-out dildo. I am the body electric, I thought, and my brain is going haywire. A year ago, I read from this book at a small gallery in Crown Heights, New York. Afterwards, while I was smoking a cigarette outside with the curator of the event, the gallery manager, a white man with a beard and tattoos, sauntered up to me and volunteered that he was taking a racial awareness seminar, which was a requirement for his other job. My racial awareness mediator is smart, he said. I am learning a lot. Good, I said. He told me how minorities can't be racist against each other. That's bullshit, I said with a sharp laugh. Are you calling my racial awareness mediator a liar? No, I said. He could just be misinformed. He also said Asians are in next line to be white, he said, crossing his arms. What do you think about that? I think you need a new racial awareness mediator. It's not true. I'm afraid not, I said, turning away from him. Why should I believe you? What? My racial awareness mediator teaches his this race stuff all the time. Why should I believe you? Patiently educating a clueless white person about race is draining. It takes all your powers of persuasion because it's more than chat about race. It's ontological. It's like explaining to a person why you exist or why you feel pain or why your reality is distinct from their reality. Except it's even trickier than that. Because a person has all of Western history, politics, literature and mass culture on their side, proving that you don't exist. In other words, I didn't know whether to tell this guy to fuck off or give him a history lesson. We were here since 1587, I could have said. So what's the holdup? Where is our white coupon? Most Americans know nothing about Asian Americans. 
devastating Chinese genetic care for the Asians the way Kleenex is for tissues. They don't understand that we are this tenuous alliance of many nationalities. There are so many qualifications weighing the we in Asian America. Do I mean Southeast Asian, South Asian, East Asian, and Pacific Islander, queer and straight, Muslim and non-Muslim, rich and poor, all all Asian self-hating? What if my cannibalizing ego is not racial phenomenon, but my own damn problem? Koreans are self-hating, a Filipino friend correcting me over drinks. Filipinos, not so much. It's a unique condition that is distinctly Asian in that some of us are economically doing better than any other minority group, but we barely exist anywhere in the public eye. Although it's now slowly changing, we have been mostly non-existent in politics, entertainment, and the media, and barely representing the art. Hollywood is still so racist against Asians that when there's a rare Asian extra in a film, I tense off with a chinky joke and relax when there isn't one. Asians also have the highest income disparity out of any racial group. Among the working class, Asians are invisible servants of the government and service industries, exposed to third world work conditions and sub-minimum wages. But it's assumed that the only group beleaguered by the shrinking welfare state is working class whites. But when we complain, Americans suddenly know everything about us. Why are you pissed you are next in line to be white, as if we are iPads queued up in an assembly line? I suppose then a history lesson is called for a quick rundown of how Chinese were first brought in as coolies to replace slaves in the plantation fields after the Civil War, or how they drilled dynamite and laid out in tracks with the transcontinental railroad until they were blown up by dynamite or buried by snowstorms. Three Chinese laborers died from every two miles of track built to make Manifest Destiny a reality. But when the celebratory culture of the Golden Spike was taken, not a single Chinese man was welcome to pose with the other white railway workers. I have to confess though, then I have a hard time embracing the 19th century history of Chinese America as my history, because my ancestors were still in Korea, doing what, I don't know, those records are gone too. I suppose I look like these Chinese men, but when I gaze upon those old photos, I see those Chinamen the way white settlement must have seen them. Real funny looking in their padded pajamas and long weird braids, like aliens photoshopped into a western. I reason it's because there are so few surviving first-hand accounts of their late daily lives. Their meal plans, their assortion, their homesickness, most of that went unrecorded. The first Chinese woman in this country has even worse. I cannot even fathom being a 15-year-old girl from China, abducted and smuggled into this wild, barbaric country, locked in a boarding house to be raped 10 times a day until her body was hallowed by syphilis. After that, she was dumped out on the street to die alone. Bare life, writes Giorgio Agamben, is the sheer biology of life as opposed to the way life is lived within protections of society, where the person is stripped of every right by virtue of the fact that anyone can kill him without committing homicide. He can save himself only in a perpetual flight. I cannot imagine a body reduced to a biological fact, like a plant or a hog. If a prostitute died alone without anyone as witness, did she ever exist? If there was a time machine, only whites would be able to go back in time in this country. Most everyone else would get enslaved, slain, maimed, or chased by after by feral children, but I will risk it for a day, just to witness the fear of living through the anti-Chinese campaign after the mid-1800s, where Chinese immigrants couldn't even leave their homes without being spat at, clubbed, or shot in the back. A campaign culminating in the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, the first immigration law that banned a race from entering the United States. After legislators and media characterized the Chinese as rat, leapers, but also machine-like, workers who stole jobs from the good white Americans. Those remaining in the United States were moving target, vulnerable to ethnic cleansing. Vigilantes planted bombs in their businesses, shot them into the tent, and smoked them out of their homes. Along the West Coast, thousands of Chinese immigrants were driven out of their towns. In 1885, in Tacoma, Washington, one woman was pregnant when whites burst into their home, dragged her out by the hair, and forced her to march along with 300 other Chinese immigrants in town, 
out into the sight, into the cold driving rain, into the wilderness, while their homes, all evidence of their lives, burned behind them. They had nowhere to go but into a perpetual flight. Another time, in 1871, a mob of nearly 500 Angelinos infiltrated Chinatown in LA over a rumor that some Chinamen had killed a white policeman. They tortured and hanged 18 Chinese men and boys, which was the largest mass lynching in American history. The street in which they were lynched was called Calles de los Negros. In 1917, the U.S. government expanded the ban to all of Asia, later even restricting Filipinos from coming in, though the Philippines was a torment U.S. colony. Basically, the immigration ban was racial segregation on global scale. When America welcomed the degraded race back in 1965, it was because they were enmeshed in an ideological pissing contest with the Soviet Union. The United States had PR problem. If they were going to stamp out of the tide of communism in poor non-Western countries, they had to reboot their racist Jim Crow image and prove that their democracy was superior. The solution was allowing non-whites into their country to see for themselves. During this period, the modern minority myth was popularized to keep communists and black people in check. Asian American success was circulating to promote capitalism and to undermine the credibility of black civil rights. We were the good ones since we were undemanding, diligent, and never asked for handouts from the government. There is no discrimination there, stewardess, as long as you are compliant and hardworking. But the status of our modern minority can change. Currently, Indian Americans are one of the highest earning groups among Asian Americans. But since 9-11, and especially within the last few years, they have been downgraded to or have begun self-identifying as brown, it's a funny thing about racialization in America. It doesn't matter that Japan once colonized Korea and part of China and invaded the Philippines during World War II. It doesn't matter that there is a long, bloody territorial dispute between India and Pakistan over Kashmir or Laotians have been systematically genocizing the Hmong people since the Vietnam War. Whatever power struggle your nation had with other Asian nations, most of it the fallout of Western imperialism and the Cold War, is steamrolled flat by Americans who don't know the difference. Since Trump's election, there has been a spike in hate crimes against Asians, most pointedly Muslims and Asians who look Muslim. In 2017, a white supremacist mistook two Hindu Indian engineers for Iranian terrorists and gunned them down. The next month, a Sikh Indian man was shot right outside his driveway in suburban Seattle after being told to go back to your own country. After years of scraping by as an agent in New York City, the poet Prankita Charma was eager to begin her new job at the University of Montana as the director of the creative writing program. I attended her farewell party in 2007. I recall her excitement as she told me about the house she'd live in with her husband, the space they'd have, the plans she had as a director. Sharma was one of the warmest and most generous-hearted poets I knew in the city, had no doubt she would settle easily in the West. During her first year as a director, Sharma hosted a party at her new home. A visiting postbuster and the two graduate students snuck up to her bedroom and stole a private article of clothing from her drawer. At the bar afterwards, the visiting professor and the student took pictures of themselves wearing it on their heads like they were in a fraternity. Later, they sent photos around so the others in the program could gawk. What to make of the fact that the visiting professor, a poet, was an Asian man? In this case, misogyny trumps any racial solidarity. This man and Sharma were also the only two Asians working in the mostly white program in a remote white state. When there were only two Asians, instead of uniting, one may try to take the other out so that the major power meted out to minorities will not be shared, so that one will not be mistaken as like the other, above abject, Sharma said, there is no other way to describe it. Sharma found out and made a sexual harassment complaint. All those involved apologized but then became enraged when she wouldn't accept their apology. It was a prank. Why couldn't she get over it? In the deposition, one white female colleague said, it just got ridiculously blown out of proportion. Instead of resolving to repair the toxicity of the program, her colleagues decided they had made a grave error in hiring Sharma since she refused to assimilate to their culture. Sharma wanted to change it. She wanted to diversify the program, which most everyone, including the student, resisted. Not Montana enough, was the overall opinion. 
not right fit, they said aloud. Although she had three books published, Carly's dismissed her as the beginning poet. No one's heard of you, was another swipe. The chair of the English department suggested that Sharma could learn more about women's leadership if she read her 12-year-old daughter's copy of Anne on Green Gables. Sharma felt like she was going crazy. No one would validate her reality and these aggressions were happening because she was an Indian woman. Everyone around me behaved badly, Sharma said, but somehow I was the biggest problem. Sharma worked that much harder as a director. But she also made a point to say something whenever she was demeaned, behavior which in the people in the program scorned as overdramatic. Eventually, the faculty in the program convinced the chair of the English department to strip Sharma of her directorship and cut her salary, claiming that her labor wasn't measurable and she should be reduced to administrative duties. This move finally motivated Sharma to file a discrimination lawsuit against the university. She realized that her colleagues never wanted her to be the director. They wanted her secretary. We have failures, heaps of failures in our hands, Sharma wrote in a situation for Mrs. Biswas, a poem about her father's career arc, which remarkably mirrored her own. Her father immigrated to America as a poor academic, who then worked his way up to become first South Asian president at a small college. Like Sharma, once he had power, her father was humiliated. But unlike Sharma, her father was forced to resign, chased out by unfounded rumors of mismanagement. A situation for Mrs. Biswas was a painful and moving morality tale that appraises the illusion of assimilation. The privilege of assimilation is that you are left alone. But assimilation must not be mistaken for power, because once you have acquired power, you are exposed, and your model minority qualification that helped you in the past can be used against you, since you are no longer invisible. Sharma writes, that her father, who always aspired to be rewarded for his good work by white people, is called a greedy brown man, an Indian who was a con, and a snake oil man. What to make of the fact that father and daughter both rose to leadership roles and were then disgraced concurrently? I can feel the reader's incredulity prickling the back of my neck, where that reader might overlook the structural racism that connects the event to conclude it must be a problem with the family, a banality an unruliness that runs in the blood. I can tell you I have attracted all kind of wild, vituperative behavior from white people because I never played the role of a compliant Asian woman. Sharma's experiences enrage me, but they don't surprise me. But because we know we won't be believed, we don't quite believe it ourselves. So we blame ourselves for being too outspoken or too proud or too ambitious. In the poem, Sharma compares her family's pride to Icarus. Imagine, we were so close to the soaring sky and imagine how we fell. How we know falling wouldn't end us. Fall right here, fall right there, cry out, oh blasting self, it can't be as bad as you'd think. For years I was under the impression that my father was a heroin dealer. When I was nine, I saw Mary Tyler Moore special about drugs. Afterwards, I dug through my parents' closet and discovered a small box that contained tinfoil, balls of black gummy substance that resembled opiates in her shell. I was scandalized. My father sold drugs. That's why he was gone so much. It turned out to be Korean herbal medicine. As a child, I picked up whatever distrust there was around Asians and animated my father's absence with it. He often complained that I never took his side. Now, as an adult, I feel protective of him, which is why I was so moved when I read Sharma's poem about her father. Whatever dignity our fathers have painstakingly built throughout the years is so fragile. I know this because I used to see my father the way other Americans saw him, with suspicion. After my father met my roommate's father at Oberlin, I scolded him. Why were you so rude? I asked. Why didn't you say anything back? We were in the car with my mother, driving to Cleveland. They wanted to go to a Korean restaurant. Since this was a before Yelp, my father searched for Kim in the yellow pages and called that random person up and asked for the restaurant suggestions. The person was excited to hear from another Korean and offers to show us around. Should I have thanked your roommate's father for that war? My father finally snapped. Is that what you wanted? The Korean word Chong is untranslatable, but the closest definition is an instantaneous deep connection, often felt between Koreans. Did I imagine Chong between this therapist? Why did I think she'd understand me? as if our shared heritage would be a shortcut to intimacy, or more accurately, a shortcut to knowing myself. 
maybe I looked for a Korean American therapist because I didn't want to do the long, slow work of psychotherapy. Maybe I didn't really want to explain my life. A Jewish friend told me he never went to a Jewish therapist because it's too easy to assume everything dysfunctional about your family is cultural. Sometimes you need to explain your experiences in order to understand them yourself. I found a therapist who happened to be Jewish. For the first session, I talked all about my feelings of rejection from the first therapist. I felt vindicated when my second therapist agreed with me that the way she'd handled it was unprofessional. He, she then wondered if my personal history was somehow too close to the first therapist, issues that she herself had not fully processed, and that was why she felt that she wasn't the right fit for me. I had unresolved feelings that extended beyond her. Maybe I was undergoing a kind of transference to use the psychoanalytic parlance, but was she supposed to be my mother, my lover, or what? After that phone call, I wrote an angry evaluation on wait my therapist to get back at her. In my long squeed, I started taking my resentment out not only on her, but on Koreans as a whole. Koreans are repressed, rigid, cold. They should not be allowed to work in the mental health care profession. I banged it out. I clicked submit. But for some reason, my long, unsafe rant never posted. It dissolved into the ether. The writer Jap Chang writes that I want to love us, but he says that he can't bring himself to do that because he doesn't know who us is. I share that uncertainty. Who is us? What is us? Is there even such a concept as an Asian American consciousness? Is it anything like the double consciousness that W.E.B. Du Bois established over a century ago? The paint on the Asian American label has not dried. The term is unwieldy, cumbersome, perched awkwardly upon my being. Since the late 60s, when Asian American activists protested with the Black Panthers, there hasn't been a mass movement we can call our own. Will we, a pronoun I use cautiously, solidify into a common collective, or will we remain splintered so that some of us remain foreign or brown, while others, through the wealth or intermarriage, pass into whiteness? A week after Trump's election, I had to fly out to Kalamazoo, Michigan for a reading. I sat next to a young South Asian man who was exceedingly polite to the flight attendant, enunciating his ma'am and please and thank you. Was he always like this or was he being cautious? After plane landing, while I was struggling to extract my rollerboard from the overhead, a bull-necked white guy in a Michigan football jersey growled, excuse me, and shoved past me. Was he just being rude or was he acting like this because I was Asian? I've been living in Brooklyn way too long. As my car ride sped past bleak concrete stretches of street malls, an outback state house, a Costco-sized family's Christian store, I saw Henry the Carver for Trump. Side whipping ominously on a street light against the blustery November sky. I'd held no strong opinions about Michigan before, but after the state went into top, clear lines were drawn. I was in enemy territory. I was then surprised by the audience in the Western Michigan University, which was more racially mixed than I had anticipated. The crowd seemed as upset as I was. That week, Republican senators were using Japanese internment camps as president to justify the Muslim registry. I talked about the internment camps and how history must not be repeated. Then I read an essay from this book. A few students from college sat up front and approached me afterward to tell me how much they appreciate the reading. Among them, a Korean-American student said how alone and alienated she felt on campus. She asked if she could hug me. When I hugged her, she began sobbing. This it is for her, I thought, that I'm writing this book. Then a white woman in her 70s came up to me. She was a gaunt, unsmiling, blinking-looking woman, her two hands gripping a cane. I want to thank you for mentioning the internment camps. I was in the POW in the Philippines during the war, she said. I came from the family of missionaries. We were all imprisoned, even though I was a child. The Japanese soldiers threatened to torture us because of what the U.S. were doing to their Japanese-American citizens. What Trump is proposing is wrong. He's putting us all in danger. After I thanked her for her story, she gave me a hard look. I wish you'd read your poems, she said sternly. You really need poems to heal. I'm not ready to heal, I said, as gently as I could be, because I was afraid how she'd respond. She nodded. I respect that, she said, and walked away. More than 3 million Koreans died in the Korean War, roughly 10% of the population. Among them, untold numbers of innocent civilians were killed because they were in the way or were mistaken for communist collaborators. 
During that war, my father was at home with his family when they heard the pounding at their door. Before they could react, American soldiers broke into their shack. The GIs kicked down earthenware jars of soy paste and trampled their bedding to shreds. In a matter of minutes, their home was in shambles. The soldiers boomed out orders in their alien language, but no one could understand anything. What do they want? The family asked one another frantically. Why are they here? The soldiers gestured at my grandfather to go outside. These gigantic men walked to my grandfather. Still, my grandfather was non-compliant. He kept asking Corinne, What do you want from us? We did nothing wrong. Finally, one of the soldiers rifle-butted my grandfather in the head and dragged him out of his own house. The whole family followed him outside, into the courtyard, and my grandfather kept pleading in Korean. The soldier fired a warning shot into the ground to shut him up. He, along with the rest of the family, was ordered to lie on the ground with his hand behind his head. The soldier cocked his gun and aimed at my grandfather's head. And then my father's older brother recognized the soldier's translator, who arrived at that moment. They had gone to school together. My uncle called out to the translator, who recognized him as well. The translator told the American soldiers their intel was mistaken. These villages were not communists, but innocent civilians. They had the wrong people. I thought of my father's story when I watched a viral video of David Dow being dragged out of the crowded United Airlines plane by a security guard. On April 9, 2017, Airline attendants asked for volunteers to give up their seats because plane was overcrowded. When no one offered, personnel randomly chose Dow to give up his seat. He refused, leading staff to call security, who forcibly removed him. Dow was a 69-year-old Vietnamese man of a narrow build with a full head of black hair that looks recently cut. He was dressed sensibly for the plane in a black Pentagonia sweater and khaki canvas cap, which was knocked off during the altercation. Asian friends of mine and Asian-American journalists who wrote about Dao said the same thing. Dao reminds me of my father. It wasn't just that he was the same age as our fathers. It was also his trim and discreet appearance that made him familiar. His nondescript appearance was as much for camouflage as it was for comfort, cultivated to a project of benign and anonymous professionalism. His appearance said, I am not one to take up space nor make a scene, not one to make that sound especially. That sound was more disturbing than Dao being dragged unconscious. Glasses skew, his sensible sweater riding up to his bare, his pushed stomach. Before he was dragged, three aviation officers wrenched Dao out of his window seat like they were yanking a mongoose out of his, his hole by the scruff. And then you heard Dao make this snarling, recently shriek. To hear that shriek in a public setting with economy class cabin stopped the heart. It was mortifying. He might as well have soiled himself. How many years did it take to prove that he was a well-spoken man? Anyone who ever had to suffer through flying economy identified with Dao. Media identified Dao as a passenger, a physician, a man, and his Asian identity. It was initially argued was beside the point. Maybe, in this rare case, an Asian man is finally the every man who represents all of middle-class America. But I don't buy it. Dao was not every man, because not every man would have been brutalized in that way. In the same way I saw Dao and thought, he is not any man. He is my father. Chicago aviation officers thought, he is not any man. He is a thing. They sized him up as a passive, unmasculine, untrustworthy, suspicious, and foreign. Years of accumulated stereotypes unconsciously flickered through their minds before they acted. And not every man would have reacted the way Dao did. After he regained consciousness, Dao escaped security and rushed back into the plane. He ran back down the aisle whilst repeating in a soft, disoriented voice, I have to go home, I have to go home. Blood streamed down his mouth and down his cheek. Later, it was discovered that the officers had slammed Dao's face into the armrest when wrenching him out of his seat, breaking his nose and his teeth, causing a severe concussion that might have made him hallucinate. Dao looked dazed and adrift as he searched for available seat or anything he could anchor himself to. He sat for the gallery curtain that separated the plane by class. He clung to the curtain as if they were a succession post and said, Just kill me, just kill me now. This is not every man. Dao is in another place, another time. The savagery of his ejection may have triggered some deep-rooted trauma. In 1975, Saigon has fallen. His home was no longer his home. Dao was forced to flee as a refugee, and him and his wife raised their family of five kids in Kentucky, a new home, 
that if reports were all to be believed about his checkered history, had his own share of absurd hardships. Dao was caught trafficking prescription drugs for sex and lost his medical license, after which he earned his income as a poker player. While I agree with his defenders that his rap sheet is irrelevant to the United Airlines incident, it's relevant to me, since it helps us to see Dao in a more complex, realistic light. Dao is not a criminal, nor is he some industrialist automation who could escape the devastation of his homeland and through miraculous arc of resilience, become an upstanding doctor whose kids are also doctors. For many immigrants, if you move here with trauma, you're going to do what it takes to get by. You cheat, you beat your wife, you gamble, you're a survivor, and like most survivors, you're a god-awful parent. Watching Dao, I thought of my father watching his own father being dragged out of his own home. I thought of, the, of Asians throughout history being dragged out against their will, driven or chased out of their native homes, out of their adopted homes, out of their native country, out of their adopted country, ejected, evicted, exiled. When I hear the phrase, Asians are next in line to be white, I replace the word white with disappear. Asians are next in line to disappear. We're reputed to be so accomplished and so low-abiding, we will disappear into this country's amnesia fog. We will not be the power, but become absorbed by power, not share the power rights, but be students to a white ideology that exploited our ancestors. This country insisted that our racial identity is beside the point, that it has nothing to do with it being bullied or passed over for promotion or cut off every time we talk. Our race has nothing to do with this country even, which is why we are often listed as other in polls and why we are hard to find in racial breakdowns on reported rape or workplace discrimination or domestic abuse. It's like being ghosted, I suppose. We're deprived of all social cues. I have no relational gauge for my own behavior. I ransacked my mind for what I could have done could have said, I stop trusting what I see, what I hear. My ego is in free fall while my super ego is boundless, wailing that my system is not enough, never enough. So I become compulsive in my efforts to do better, be better, blindly following this country's gospel of self-interest, proving my individual worth by expanding my network until I vanish.